I don't know. Good morning, church. I mean, they update it all the time. Morning. Doing well? Did you guys hear that? <laughs> okay, I was like, am I talking to myself? Uh, anyways, hey, my name is Mark. I am the director of Next Steps here, in case you are new. And we're going to continue in our series, Life According to Jim, in just a moment, where we'll look through uh, James chapter 2. But before we do that, I'd like to offer a few thoughts and then pray together uh, regarding some current events. If you are aware of the news, if you understand what's going on, then you know on Friday, the Supreme Court overturned uh, Roe v. Wade and the associated cases that go along with that, releasing the federal regulation of abortion to the states. And you probably have seen a lot of comments and posts already and news articles about that. And so I thought maybe just offer four thoughts that may help us as we navigate the next few weeks. Uh, thought number one, social media wars generally don't help anyone. You are going to be enticed. You are going to be tempted to want to comment on things that offend you. And you will easily be drawn into arguments in the comment in the post feeds on your social media platforms. And just be cautious on how much you engage in that platform because generally arguments there don't produce much good fruit. You've probably seen that with other situations. Thought number two, be informed. Be informed. I would encourage you to read the Supreme Court decision. I would encourage you to uh, come up to date on the, uh, what's going on and understand the situation. Be informed so that you are able to have conversations with people as they emerge. Uh, thought number three, and I'm losing my train of thought here. Thought number three, get involved. Thought number three, get involved. You know, we partner with an organization called Beside You for Life, and their goal is to help women in crisis pregnancies, but also as they begin to navigate uh, motherhood and beyond. And wouldn't it be amazing if they got a flood of phone calls from us this week saying, how can I help? How can I be involved and partner with you to help in this situation? Because their job is not going to get easier. It may become even more difficult. So let's get involved. And, and number four, be prayerful. Uh, pray about everything in every situation with prayers and petitions is what scripture says. And so I want to kind of conclude our thoughts on that with some prayer. And then we'll jump right into our, our lesson this morning. Sound good? Let's pray together. Let's bow our heads. God, we are... Here today, in your name, to praise and honor you and thank you for life and the blessing, the miracle that it is. God, help us to be people who honor life at every stage by serving others. You tell us all the scriptures hang on loving you and loving others. So God, would you grant us wisdom and discernment in the coming days and weeks? Help us speak when we need to speak and be silent when we need to be silent. Help our words and actions bring, to bring healing rather than woundedness. We pray for our leaders, as you tell us to do, from the federal to state to the local level. May they seek your wisdom and guidance as they begin to make plans for the future. We pray for the church, that she reflects your love and grace to everyone. We pray for the organizations that support crisis pregnancies, that they receive the support they need 
to keep performing the vital functions they provide and to keep them safe while doing so. So Father, be with us as we seek to be people who love justice, seek mercy, and walk humbly with you. Amen. All right, thank you guys for listening there. I want to teach you a word this morning. Here it is. If you're taking notes, you want to write down this word. It's sunerigo. And you're like, Mark either can't read or doesn't know how to spell because that's not a real word. And you're right because it's not English. This is a Greek word. It is translated into English as synergy. Now that might be a word that you are somewhat familiar with, the word synergy. And and I'll kind of illustrate it you know what synergy is when you experience it. Uh, It's what we mean when we say we're firing on all cylinders, right? When things are just clicking, they're going the way they're supposed to go. You're at work and everyone seems to be getting along. They're on the same page. Things are going really well. You know how it feels when you're at home and you and your spouse are sharing the load appropriately and the kids are taken care of and the house is taken care of and you still manage to find a night to go out and enjoy each other's company, right? There's synergy, there. You know what it feels like. There's harmony and there's peace and there's unity that's created when things are working together well. Synergy is the power that is produced when multiple things are working together. You also know what it feels like when there's a lack of synergy, when there's tension, when there's a rub, when there's dysfunction. That's what we mean when we say we should all get on the same page. We, we just intuitively know things aren't working the way they're supposed to. You, you know this feeling at work when someone doesn't like the boss, but nobody will tell the boss, and so you all have secret conversations about the boss that he doesn't know about, right? There's disunity, there's tension. Are you that, that, that person you work with at work doesn't really like your idea, but they're not going to tell you up front, so they're going to passively, aggressively tell others, and right, everybody's kind of, sort of working against each other. There's not all-out conflict, but there's just... A rub. It's like uh, you know this in marriage. Uh, if one spouse feels like they're carrying more of the load than the other one, and things just aren't working, and so then all of a sudden bitterness and resentment build up that you don't articulate because why would you do that? You'll wait until a really bad time and then blow up and wonder all the while what was going on. Things weren't working together. There was a tension, there was a conflict, a rub, there was a lack of synergy. And that's an important word I want to talk about today because I think it's a key word in our text that we're going to be in. We're continuing in our series, Life According to Jim, where we're looking at some life lessons the brother of Jesus gave to some of the early followers. So if you've got a Bible, you can grab that. If you have a Bible app you use, feel free to use that. If you are new with us and you don't have a Bible, take the one out of the seat back. Take it home with you. That's a gift. We encourage you to read. There is no greater power in any book and what you'll find in scripture. We're gonna be in James chapter two. We're gonna start in verse 14, and we're gonna look for this word synergy. We're we're gonna see if we can find it. So you can follow along on the screen if you'd like to do that as well. So James chapter two, starting in verse 14. He starts with a question. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such a faith save them? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is that? In the same way, 
faith by itself, if not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds and I will show you my faith by my deeds. You believe there is one God, good. Even demons believe that and shudder. You foolish person, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together. Synergio, synergy, were working together and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture is fulfilled and says, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness and he was called a friend You see that a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. In the same way, was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction? As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. Apparently there was some tension amongst the early believers. Good thing there's no tension in the church today, right? right? There's no conflict. There's no disunity amongst believers today. Of course there is, right? We're very similar to the early people. We have similarities. And I want to be clear that there's a lot of opinions about what James is talking about here. There's a lot of scholarly work that's been done about what faith, what faith and works means and which one saves. And I'm of the opinion that James isn't really writing a theological paper here. James isn't really writing a dissertation on salvation. James was the brother of Jesus. He actually didn't believe Jesus was God until after the resurrection when Jesus revealed himself. And then he began to follow. And James was a very well-known man in Jerusalem. And so it would have been very likely for people to come to him and say, hey, you're like the brother of Jesus, right? What should I do in this situation? He would have been someone they went to for wise counsel. And so I want us to consider this morning James' writing being more from a mentor-like perspective than some doctoral essay on salvation. He's much more concerned about what people's faith looks like in practice than he is wading into some choppy theological waters. And so I I tend to think of James more like a mentor. He kind of took some time and he wrote down, I think, some of the things that people ask him. And kind of sent this out. Some scholars believe this is the oldest book in the New Testament. That this was written before some of the Gospels. And so this would have been very early advice to some of the new believers in Jesus. So keep that in mind as we're going through today. James, more like a mentor. And who is he writing to? He's writing to the kind of the first believers. Some of the first people who are really following Jesus. And those would have been the, the Jewish believers. And if you know anything about Jewish faith, it's very based on rule following. It's a, they were given the law in the Old Testament, and they were expected to follow that law and then af- offer some sacrifices to offset for their sins. And so it was a very rule-following culture. And so imagine this charismatic man comes through and says, hey, I am the law. Believe in me, and you shall inherit eternal life. And they listen to this, and then eventually they hear rumors that one of his apostles, John, writes, hey, whoever believes in Jesus will have eternal life. And so maybe they're like, hey, you know what? We don't have to follow all those crazy rules anymore. 
We can eat what we want. Uh, we can go where we want. We can dress the way we want. And so they kind of abandoned, I think, some of their practices that were useful in their faith tradition. And if I were going to try to summarize what James is saying to them is that some of you have defaulted to this system. Believe in Jesus, be saved, and then go live your life. Good thing nobody believes that anymore, right? Just profess the name of Jesus and then you go on. You live your life however you want because you're saved. And it seems to be into that sort of context that James is writing to this group of people who said, hey, I believe in Jesus, but he would offer, what's the evidence? How do we really know? James questions this belief system. He seems to be saying, okay, so you believe in Jesus, that's great, so do demons. So what separates us from a demon? Imagine sitting down with James, like having coffee. I doubt they had coffee back then, but just the mentor thing, you know. So you're sitting there, and he's like, hey, what's making you different from a demon today? That's a hard-hitting question, James. I don't know. And what he's basically saying is, if, if I didn't know you, I would have no idea that you followed Jesus. And he's like, even the demons believe that. They know who Jesus is. There's, that's recorded in Scripture where the demons talk to Jesus. They know who he is. And he's like, so what makes, that, what makes you different than a demon? I mean, that's hard hitting, right? He goes on to kind of ask the question, what is produced by faith alone? Are you saying, you say you believe, what's the evidence? What is produced by merely just a belief in Jesus? If you merely just profess it with your lips, what's the, what's the fruit of that? And might I suggest... Some of the fruit of that might be hypocrisy. You know, hypocrisy, that one reason why people leave the church or don't want to come to church. That place is full of a bunch of hypocrites, they say. Well, of course, we're, we're people trying to figure this thing out. But what they're really articulating is, I see a disconnect between what people say they believe and what they actually do. And so if all we do is profess with our lips that Jesus is Lord and our actions don't reflect that, then what we help create is hypocrisy. Which then leads to cynicism, to people wondering and doubting, can I even trust that those people believe what they say? And James would even go on and say, you know what else is produced? Poverty and starvation. He gives the example of the man who doesn't have any food or clothing. And if you just say, hey, go believe in Jesus and you don't help him, well, then he's going to starve. Right? He's not going to have any clothing. So James is really trying to, I think, question their belief system. He's addressing this disconnect in their life. He's writing to these people and saying, listen, I'm sensing a disconnect. You say you believe in Jesus, and that's great, profess it. But then what are you doing about it, is what he's asking. He's trying to remind them, hey, Jesus said to love me with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, and to love others as much as you love yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on that, he says. So everything you do should be centered around loving God and loving others. He gives Abraham as an example to this group that would have made sense. He was the father of the Jewish race, and he's saying he believed in God, but then he did some things about it. Was he perfect? No way. If you know Abraham's story, in no way was he perfect. But he was devoted to God, and he was doing something about it. 
He says, consider Rahab, the prostitute. Now, poor Rahab, every time you see her name, the word prostitute's attached to it. It's not a great legacy. He's saying, hey, you know, you, you're not much better a demon or maybe even a prostitute. Jeez, James, like, easy now. You're supposed to be helping me live a life, and instead you're like saying I might be a demon or a prostitute, no better than a prostitute. I mean, he's, he's hitting hard here, but he's saying, listen, she even acted on the little bit of knowledge she had, and she gave comfort to the spies that had come in to kind of see where they were going. Right? He's saying, I think there's a disconnect between what's in your heart and what your hands and feet are doing, right? James was pointing out there was a lack of synergy, a lack of working together, a disconnect between their hearts and their hands. There was a disconnect between what they believed and what they were actually doing with that belief. And as a result of this disconnect, what was going on? Well, people were going hungry, conflict persisted, favoritism ran rampant, judgment reigned over mercy, tongues burned with corruption, and the name of Jesus was muddied. And that was just by the people who called themselves Christians. That doesn't even include the culture. And he was saying, there's got to be more to your faith than just simply saying you believe in Jesus. So I want to ask you the same question James was asking them. Do your heart and hands align? Do your heart and your hands align? Is what you're doing reflective of what you believe? And the same for me. Does, does my heart and my hands align? Are they working together? Or is there a disconnect in my life? Is there a tension? Is there a conflict, a rub that just keeps coming up and I can't figure out what it is? And maybe it's because there's misalignment. You just haven't really brought these things to working together. There's a lack of synergy in your life. That's what James is asking. Is there a disconnect? And he might also ask, is there any evidence in your life that you follow Jesus? Is there any dirt under our fingernails or any calluses on our hands from serving others? If you were to become mute today, if you could no longer profess Jesus with your lips, would anyone even know that you follow him? Would you even have a pulse? Because you see, faith without deeds, James says, is dead. And this question doesn't just apply to new believers. If you were baptized yesterday or 50 years ago, the same thing applies. Do our hearts and our hands align? Are we living a synergistic life as James would suggest? Maybe to help you answer that, consider two things. What's in your heart and where are your hands? What's in your heart and where are your hands? All right, is your heart focused on Christ and his, his goodness and his grace and his mercy and his love? And are your hands engaged in some sort of service? Or is your heart mainly focused on yourself and your surroundings and the news and the economy and the current events and the disease and all these things? Does that consume your heart and thus keep your hands in your pockets? Where, what is in your heart? And where are your hands? This is again, Rahab and Abraham. He says, Abraham and Rahab, 
both thought about God in those situations. No, they weren't perfect, but let me give you these people as an example. They were thinking about God and they were involved in some sort of service to him and others. They were deeply flawed, as we all are, but they pursued a surrendered life to Jesus. So what's in your heart? And where are your hands? What's in your heart? What do you think about most of the time? And then what are your hands doing about it? You know, we sing songs all the time around here, songs like I Surrender All, and just a moment ago we sang Waymaker, Miracle Worker, Promise Keeper, Light in the Darkness, right? We profess these things with our mouths. We, we love to sing the song Amazing Grace. But have we surrendered all? Or are we just professing that with our lips? Do we really believe that he is a way maker for everyone or just for me? And does that amazing grace that sings in our hearts compel us to work and to serve others? I mean, consider the words to the song Amazing Grace, probably the most well-known Christian hymn of all time, right? Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see you. And I wanna encourage you to engage with me for a moment. Go ahead and close your eyes. If you're online, you can do this unless you're driving. Don't close your eyes. That would be dangerous. I'm gonna ask you to sing that line of amazing grace with me. And if you don't sing, then it's going to feel like I got hung out to dry. So you got to sing with me, okay? And I want our voices just to, just to take a moment and contemplate. And, my, and what I, is what I'm singing really happening in my life? So sing with me. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me I once was lost but now I am found was blind but now I see sing that again really believe that how can our lives not reflect it I mean if we really believe that Jesus's amazing grace saved us how can we not be moved to extend that grace to others if you and I really believe that Jesus saved a bunch of wretches like us how can we not be moved to have compassion for those who are in need 
I mean, if we really believe that we were once lost and blind, but Jesus rescued us and restored our sight, how can we not lead others into that truth? How can we not do anything but love God and serve others every day? You see, it's because it's at the intersection of faith and works where synergy is found. You see, it's at the intersection of faith and works where synergy is found at the cross is the greatest example of when everything began to work together. Jesus' faith in his Father and in his love for you and I was proved when he stretched out his hands and he died for you and for me. The greatest example of synergy in all of history. When things were working together, when Jesus put his faith and his actions together, it's an amazing example and one we should look to emulate. You know, I told you earlier, I like to think of James as a mentor and I have a couple of mentors that I look up to, some guys who have poured some of their life into me over the last couple of years, some guys that I've really admired and have grown to love as they have poured into me. And if you don't have a mentor-type relationship, I encourage you to get one. Reach out to us, let us know, hey, I, I need somebody to walk with me and to shepherd me a little bit. And earlier this week, one of those mentors sent out a poem to us that he had read online and had no idea what I was preaching but they work together so well. I'd like to share that poem with you. And it's, it's brilliant, it really sums up what we're talking about today. The writer says, I'd rather see a sermon than hear one any day. I'd rather one should walk with me than merely tell me the way. The eyes, a better pupil and more willing than the ear. Fine counsel can be confusing, but examples are clear. And the best of all the preachers are the men who live their creeds. For to see God put in for to see good put in action is what everybody needs. Uh, when I see a deed of kindness, I am eager to be kind. One good man teaches many, men believe what they behold, but one deed of kindness is far greater than forty told. Though an able speaker charms me with his eloquence, I say. I'd rather see a sermon than hear one any day. Are we living sermons? Are we living out what we profess to believe? Do your heart and your hands align? Are there people in your neighborhood who need to see Jesus, not just hear about Jesus? There are people in your living room who need to see Jesus, not just hear about him are you a living sermon believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord profess that with your lips and then put that faith into action let your heart and your hand align and when we do that when our faith and our works align there's a synergy that's created that can change this entire world amen church Let's pray. God, thank you for the truth in Scripture. May we be people who don't just say we believe in you, but may we do something about it. 
I pray for those in the room or online who need to make that first step toward becoming aligned with you. None of this makes sense unless we have a relationship with you. And so I pray for anyone who has not surrendered their life to you, that they would do that, that they would be able to sing amazing grace with truth. Uh, For those of us who follow Jesus, help us to put our, our hearts and our hands in sync with one another in service to you. Help us to love you with all of our heart and all of our mind and all of our soul and all of our strength and to love others as much as we love ourselves. We pray those things in your name, God. Amen.